MSW Media. A former federal prosecutor testified that he was directed to give favorable treatment to Roger Stone. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. What can we do about it? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I speak with Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. You know, Patty, I, I have to say that dealing with all of the tragedies the outrages, the problems that are posed by the Trump administration really feels like you, you're essentially on a treadmill that never stops. And it's an analogy, I'll, I'm going to credit that one to Asha Rangappa, uh, who came up with that one years ago. But that is really how it feels to me. I, I feel like there's so many outrages. There's so many scandals. There's so much potential corruption and malfeasance. That it's just, it's hard to keep track of, much less do something about it. Well, and I, you know, when this uh, really started to take hold, I mean, when, when Trump's candidacy beginning in 2015 started to take hold, I, I was on the air at the time on a radio show uh, in the middle of the night, uh, albeit, you know, and, and with a lot of room to have conversations. But we talked a lot about kind of pacing ourselves when it came to the outrages and you know because there, there is you know this sort of desire to just check out and go okay that i can't possibly pay attention to all of it and that's kind of the thing is it feels as though it's it's by design too it, you know if you it, like there's the tweet where he retweeted some guy in a golf cart with a trump flag and, and saying white power you know now we're looking at that and and there's so many other things that are affecting us and and it is a, you know a symptom of of who he is and what he tries to rile in people. Um, and I guess a lot, a lot of people like me have to really hope that November that we have, you know, that really um, this sort of, uh, I, I guess for a better word, lack of moral leadership. Uh, I, I just hope that he's not triumphant again. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I think uh, we could ho- do a whole other podcast on what people can do to, help make that happen because I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how to contribute to that uh, while we are at home. I guess what I would say, though, is, you know, Trump often does these outrageous things to distract from the real malfeasance that's occurring. You know, we read about that recently, that he was, you know, doing some outrageous stuff to distract from Ivanka using uh, her private emails, right? Sort of the same thing that Hillary was you know, they made such a big deal about Hillary doing. So I think, you know, here it's like, yeah, he tweets out a, a video of a guy making a racist statement 
absolutely abhorrent. Of course, for Donald Trump, that's not even probably in the top 20 or top 50 uh, abhorrent things he's done over the last X number of months or whatever you want to rank them. Um, and it's distracting from the fact that the president of the United States is subverting our criminal justice system to help get all of his associates out of prison, right? I mean, it's, it's so bad that the pro- the judge on that case ha- ha- actually ha- forced the Justice Department to say whether it was giving any kind of special treatment or consideration to Stone in writing when she- they were asking her to delay, when they were um, acquiescing, they were agreeing to uh, him not not reporting until later. And I think, you know, essentially. When federal judges are questioning whether the Justice Department is corrupt, that really says something. And it's it sort of it's sort of to me, I worry that even if there's a, a Trump defeat in November, that we're losing something important as a country. And I worry because Trump and his crew have created this whole narrative that the Justice Department is corrupt and going after them that they've used that almost as a cloud to hide their own corruption and corrupt use of this uh, instrument. And I worry that we won't be able to get back to a spot where we can have faith in our institutions again. Oh, that's been, I agree. That's been a, a worry of mine for a long time. Uh, you know, whether, and th- and that leads us even to this pandemic, right? Where we don't even believe, and I, I don't mean we, but there are so many Americans who won't even take the advice of medical professionals because we've taken, we've, you know, worn away at what's true in, in the press or what we see on TV that I, I think that it has had a, an impact intellectually on, on those who just don't care about the truth, but what they're being told by the president. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, now uh, we're recording this on on a Sunday, and this morning the administration so- spokespeople, uh, and including Vice President Pence, are suddenly now on the mask train. Okay, now everyone should be wearing a mask when they spent weeks telling everyone that that was a bunch of liberal hocus pocus and that you shouldn't, you know, trust doctors. Uh, you know, there is definitely an Orwellian element to all of this, where they're trying to convince us that. Truth isn't truth, to quote Rudy Giuliani, um, that essentially we can't trust our own eyes and ears. We can't trust medical professionals or scientists. We can't, you know, trust any of our institutions or rely on any of them. And it's concerning, you know, in our home state, uh, uh, Patty, we rely on federal prosecutors and the Justice Department to clean up corruption in our state. And of course, we've had you know, for example, Rod Bogoyevich, our corrupt uh, former governor, claim he's the victim of persecution. The reason he's able to do that is because the the Trump administration and Trump and his allies have done such a, you know, good job of trying to create this sort of uh, narrative that you can't trust the Justice Department, you can't trust our justice system. Every time a politician is being investigated. It's 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 corrupt. It's scary times. It's scary times, Renata. It is scary times. It it is scary times. And I think the the scarier thing to me is what the heck are we going to do about it? Because you know we have, for example, we had this whole episode with the removal of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, 
and we're going to have a guest on to discuss that with. We had this testimony by a former federal prosecutor that we talked. I talked about a minute ago, testifying under oath that there was corruption. And the, the, the temperature that I'm getting from members of Congress is, you know, we're in an election season. There's only so much we could do with this stuff. And we tried to impeach the guy. Didn't work. There's really nothing we could do. Nancy Pelosi said as much publicly. And from my perspective, you know, if we do nothing about this, if we don't investigate this matter, something is being lost. And I guess um, that is a good segue to discuss our guest, um, Jennifer Rogers. Some of you know her from CNN, uh, where she's a legal analyst. But before that, uh, for many years, she was a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. Uh, and not only that, she was actually a chief there. So she is part of that network, has strong feelings about that office and what happened there. Because there's also been news, of course, that uh, Barr had been trying to insert himself into the Michael Cohen prosecution. And, you know, we're going to be discussing that topic and all of this with her right now. Welcome back to the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Always glad to be here. Jennifer, I have to say, it's a starting point. Um, you know, the the whole episode of firing Jeffrey Berman was one of the most bizarre uh, news cycles I've ever uh, I've ever witnessed. You know, it was something I was, you know, thinking about writing a column about it. But the the the, the actual news changed from hour to hour, and really, I didn't realize that something might be up there until Preet Bahara tweeted that there was more to the story. You know, what was your reaction when you first heard this news late on a Friday night that Berman was supposedly stepping down? Well, honestly, Renata, my first reaction was I was very, very unsettled and and sad, and in a in a more personal way than news of this administration's bad faith and misdeeds usually hit me because, you know, I worked there. That's my shop, the Southern District, and so it felt very much like a place that I had been. Uh, so happy that that up till now had seemed to be relatively unaffected by what's been going on in the country in large and at DOJ, all of a sudden kind of hit home that it's not immune, you know. Um, they could go in there and take out the U.S. attorney and put in a Trump uh, replacement who would change the nature of what they're doing there and squash things that they wanted to be doing if they were deemed unhelpful to the administration. And so my first reaction was really visceral, like, wow, they're they're now really hitting home for me. And so I was I was really shaken by it. Yeah, I can only imagine. I, you know, I have a similar attachment to my own former office in the Northern District of Illinois. And all of us are sort of an alumni network. We all stay in touch and have such strong feelings about that office where we spent, for me, it was nearly a decade of my life. Um, I can only imagine the impact it had. And, and I imagine for you, it, it, you were approaching it from a different perspective than me as well. Because so to me, I did see some oddities in that initial press release like for example it didn't didn't appear like he could shuffle all of these chairs around and actually move the SEC chairman there and then uh, have the the US attorney for the district of New Jersey fill in it seemed kind of weird and sort of haphazard but it didn't it it didn't raise my eyebrows in the same way it did for you i i wonder if you know for you whether you had heard things or just had a sense that this was that installation of 
of uh, it was an attempted at interference or a, a sort of polit- politicization that I didn't even see at first glance. Yeah, I think I did. And it's it's not because I have any inside information. It's because a number of things pointed to the fact that this was, you know, not the run of the mill. Oh, we're just moving people around in a neutral way, but in fact, a bad faith attempt to interfere with what's going on there. And, and that's for a few reasons. You know, one, he didn't give us any performance-related reason for the firing, and to this day has not. And in fact, they offered him head of him, meaning Jeff Berman, head of the civil division, which is a bigger, more broad-reaching job. So it's not performance-related. Um, the fact, but the biggest key to me, the biggest tell was the fact that they uh, tried to install the New Jersey U.S. attorney as acting U.S. attorney in Southern District, and that's not the way it's done. As you well know, the deputy U.S. attorney becomes the acting U.S. attorney whenever the U.S. attorney resigns or is removed. That's you know by operation of law how it's supposed to be done. And so instead of just letting that happen, you know, he, under cover of a Friday night slow news cycle, issues this press release. So we're we're nominating Jay Clayton to be the new U.S. attorney, thanks to Jeff Berman, who is stepping down. And by the way, the New Jersey U.S. attorney is coming in to run not just his pretty big U.S. attorney's office, but the Southern District, too, when there's a perfectly capable deputy sitting there ready to take over, really just said to me, you know, this is a bad faith move. And, you know, I just thought also, and I'm sure you thought this as well, it was so badly bungled. I mean, if he really wanted to get this done or get something done, this was not the way to do it. I guess he didn't anticipate Perman would push back and let people know what really happened. But, man, it really backfired on them, I thought, pretty spectacularly. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, I guess I have to say... Yeah, the the definitely the the appointment of or the attempted sort of having the temporary replacement being this this the uh, U.S. attorney from the District of New Jersey was the first tell for me because that's a very large office. Something that our listeners may not know is that U.S. attorneys' offices are very much in uh, different sizes. Okay, uh, you know, certain states even if they're smaller, like Iowa, has multiple U.S. attorneys' offices you know, different districts for that that smaller state, whereas New Jersey, which is a pretty populated state, has one U.S. attorney's office for the whole state. It's actually a very large U.S. attorney's office. And the idea that that would be managed, that that the person managing that office would be remotely managing what is widely regarded as, you know, you know, certainly if not the most important, you know, one of the few most important U.S. attorney's offices in the country is uh, uh, hard to believe uh, just on its face. Yeah, it's, it's preposterous. And, and you know, you also just have to wonder about the timing. I mean, we have an election coming up. You know, the notion that you're going to shake things up and, and move people around at this point, that there really has to be a reason why. And this notion that it's because Jay Clayton just decided that he wants to come back to New York, and so they're trying to find a place for him. And he who, you know, by the way, is a transactional corporate lawyer and has never litigated a day in his life, and now he wants to be the head of the Southern District of New York when all they do is litigate. You know, the guy knows nothing about civil or criminal litigation. I mean, none of that rings true. So it just makes you wonder, what's coming? You know, what was going to come out of Southern District in the next two months, you know, understanding that they wouldn't bring any cases right before the election if they would potentially impact the election. So what was coming down the pike this summer that they were so afraid of that they had to try to 
move people around in highly, highly unusual, if not unprecedented ways to try to put a stop to it. Yeah, exactly right. I, I have to, you know, in addition to not being a litigator, he's never practiced criminal law. And I think to the listeners, what I would say is criminal law is such a unusual sort of area onto its own that I, it would be very difficult, given that such a significant portion of the U.S. Attorney's Office's work is criminal law, to have someone who didn't have experience in that area running a U.S. Attorney's Office. I don't know how they could do it. It's sort of like having, a, you know, psychiatry is such a different field from other aspects of medicine that if somebody had been, you know, an OBGYN or a family doctor and you're trying to make them a psychiatrist, it's just very hard or to oversee a psychiatry department. I, I don't know how they could do it. It's such a different area. Yeah. And, and, you know, more than that, too, I mean, people point to the fact that Bill Barr himself was never a prosecutor. But, you know, the attorney general is, is different. I mean, there's so much policy in that position. And so he oversees so many different components of the Justice Department that don't have to do with actual kind of day-to-day criminal cases. But at a U.S. attorney's office, as you know, it's different. The U.S. attorney makes strategic litigation calls in a lot of cases. I mean, that's mostly what he or she does is, you know, think about and, and talk to the prosecutors about the most important cases going on in the office and making final decisions about those. So, you know, the notion that someone who, like you said, hadn't been a prosecutor or a criminal defense lawyer, you know, some sort of criminal practitioner, uh, it, it just, it doesn't pass the smell test for them trying to put him in there. And I'm, you know, I, I don't understand why he's still in the mix. I mean, given that Lindsey Graham is going to honor the blue slip process and Schumer and Gillibrand are not going to allow it. I don't know why he hasn't withdrawn by now, but I guess we'll just wait and see what happens with that. Yeah, well, you know, some of the president's allies, I saw Tom Cotton was criticizing Graham for um, you, for uh, adhering to that process and just uh, to explain that that's a process where either one of the home state senators can essentially veto a nomination to hold up a nomination to someone in their state um, for U.S. attorney, I, you know, it, it could be that they're waiting for a time when um, when, the, you know, this the, the news is passed and the attention is focused on something else. Lindsey Graham is uh, golfing with uh, Trump uh, today. You know, maybe there'll be some change of heart down the line. Perhaps that's what they're hoping. I mean, we'll say, Jennifer, you know, both of us are raising questions about this you even more than me and yet we still don't know the full answer right i mean berman's gone uh but that we don't know that who knows what the next move could be from the uh, trump white house it's true it's true and and audrey strauss who had been the deputy is now the acting u.s attorney and i think most uh folks like me out of southern district are, are comfortable with that but you know, like you said, we don't know if they'll try to do something else and try to remove her or or do things that we can't see. Like, as you know, a lot of what happens at a U.S. attorney's office has to run through Washington anyway, you know, has to be approved or at least supervised, especially if it's a high-profile matter. So, you know, it may be that, that there will be things happening behind the scenes that we won't even ever know, like pressure from Washington to change their prosecutorial decisions and, and things like that. So, you know, it it's not that I think, oh, we're all in the clear now because they backed off of this plan to insert the New Jersey guy, and, and so they're going to do whatever they want at Southern District. I'm still concerned about interference. It just may be the sort of interference that we don't get to know about, at least at the time that it's happening. Yeah, I think that's right. And, of course, there was a news story 
um, about uh, Barr's, I wouldn't say whether you want to call it interference, intervention, you know, however you want to term it, in the in the Southern District's uh, prosecution of Michael Cohen. And lest anyone forget, Michael Cohen was prosecuted for campaign finance violation, and he pled guilty to that to that uh, um, offense, and that scheme implicated uh, President Trump. And essentially, based on the New York Times reporting, it sounded like there was a lot of intense involvement over a course of weeks by Barr in in that in in that uh, the handling of that prosecution in the Southern District, even though the prosecution was effectively over by the time he took over. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, even things that were were done before he got there, once he gets there, you know, he obviously recognized that the one piece of the Michael Cohen case that could touch the president was that campaign finance charge where the Southern District effectively came out and said that they had evidence that individual one who was the president had conspired to commit that campaign finance offense. And so Barr comes in and and sees that even though he's already pled and been sentenced, he's trying to meddle around with that and say that that charge, you know, wasn't uh, uh, viable or shouldn't have been brought. And he's doing that for one reason, right? Not because he cares about Michael Cohen. That particular offense didn't even affect his his sentence anyway. Uh, the sentence was driven by the other offenses, the tax offenses and so on. It's to basically stop any future down-the-road prosecution of the president. I mean, there's no other reason for that sort of interference. So it's just, you know, it, this is what he's done, Barr. He just comes in in any way he can. He's trying to help the president out of these legal troubles that he has caused for himself, like one case after another. Yeah, I think in many ways it makes um, it, it makes Barr's someone to me is more dangerous. I mean, he's very highly motivated to uh, please Trump, to push his agenda, this and that, and you know, do what he can you to use the Justice Department as a tool to protect Trump. And he's but he he's very smart about the way he goes about it. I mean, I will give Barr credit in that he's some you know Trump sometimes is just bumbling along. Barr is very calculated, and this seems to me to be part of a pretty calculated use of the Justice Department by Barr. Well, it's it's certainly he's certainly more clever about it than than Trump is, without question. And and some of what he did, especially at the beginning, like this whole thing about the Cohen case, no one even knew about that until very very recently. You know, that kind of was all. Uh, under wraps, maybe that is changing. You know, maybe now he's more comfortable. I mean, the, this thing with Berman just exploded into the public eye, and he really had to know that it would. So maybe he's kind of leaving behind some of those reservations to try to be sneakier about it than he had at the beginning. Um, but there's no question that he is using the Department of Justice in such a way as to try to protect the president in a way that we haven't seen before. And that's why so many uh, DOJ alums like you and me, and, and also, of course, plenty of other people who believe in uh, the rule of law are objecting so loudly to what he's been doing. Yeah, I think, and in fact, I think we do have a um, a question from our listeners uh, that's relevant to this, uh, Patty. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of listeners have this question. <laughs> I have this question, which is, how safe is Audrey Strauss in this position? 
Yeah, I mean, I I wish I knew. I think she she gets gains a little security because of the way this all went down so publicly, and you know, so much pushback, and then so many voices raised against the way that that this was handled by the Department of Justice, and you know, coupled with the fact that the election is coming so soon, Congress will go um, into recess fairly soon. Um, so you know, I, I don't know that there will be a way for her to be removed easily before the election. Um, it's, it's not impossible. You know, they could, they could ditch Jay Clayton and, and put someone else in and really try to ram it through. Um, or they could try to do what they already tried to do, which is to put someone in as an acting or interim. But my best guess is that she is safe till the election. I just think there's so much public attention focused on it now that if they're going to try to interfere with Southern District's cases, they're going to have to do it uh, in the way that they tried to do it with Michael Cohen, a little bit more on the supervisory side uh, and on the approval side, rather than trying to shove someone else in there to run the office. Yeah, I have to say um, I wouldn't put anything past them, um, but I think you're right, uh, Jennifer, as, as usual. I, I almost always agree with all of your commentary. It's pretty rare to, to disagree with your uh, your your views, um, but I think you're you're right. I do, but I wouldn't put I wouldn't put anything past them. But I agree, you're right. Um, I think um, you know. I think that. It's just the, the, the problem for them is going to be the, the actual, the statute themselves. It seemed like Barr hadn't really looked at the statute himself and the fact that just getting a Senate confirmed nominee in a short period of time before the election seems difficult. Now, if, if Trump's reelected, I think that's a different story. Um, but I will say even this is different than how it's been in the past. You know, when I was a federal prosecutor here in Chicago, um, my uh, former boss, Pat Fitzgerald, had an extraordinarily long tenure. And part of that was because he was always investigating somebody who was close to one of the presidents. In other words, he was investigating Scooter Libby for a long time. And there was talk by Alberto Gonzalez of getting rid of of Pat Fitzgerald for political reasons. And that was a major scandal. And he was not removed. And then he was investigating... um, uh, you know, individuals uh, uh, related to Rod Bogoyevich. And I, I don't know. I just, but I think that that had something to do with the fact that he remained in, in that office for so long over kind of greater than the span of two, two presidential terms. And, you know, the thought of trying to remove someone who is investigating the president's associates would ordinarily, I think, be unthinkable. But of course, to this crew, it is not. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Normally, the way that you keep your job as U.S. attorney is you either do exactly what the president wants you to do, so the president is happy with your performance, or the the, the polar opposite, right? You investigate people, either the president himself or people so close to him that he couldn't possibly remove you. Um, like, those are usually the two ways, but I agree with you. I mean, and apparently they also, there was reporting that they talked about removing him you know, months and months and months ago, uh, and didn't because of the investigations into Michael Cohen and so on. Um, but I think, you know, all bets are off now. I mean, those investigations, many of them are still ongoing, and yet they were willing to do what they did to remove him. So, you know, that again kind of points to me, like, why now? Why in this way when they weren't willing to do it before? You know, what may be coming? And and that question, I don't know. I can't answer. But it, it just makes me think that there may be something in the hopper for the summer that 
is making them willing to kind of throw the caution to the wind and remove him, even though he's investigating the president. Yeah, there was definitely that unusual line in Berman's uh, statement where he essentially said, you know, I, I'm not leaving and our, our investigations are going to continue unimpeded, essentially suggesting that he was concerned that they would be impeded if he didn't leave. I thought that was very interesting and suggested that he thought that there was some danger of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you read it any other way. And I think he was struck by the same things that struck all of us. I mean, he apparently met with Barr that day and heard nothing about stepping down and then says he learned from a press release he was stepping down. Uh, and then I think, again, that the capper is trying to bring someone from outside in. Another Trump-appointed U.S. attorney from the outside in to run the office just made him think like the rest of us thought this was about interfering with their work. So, you know, good good for him for pushing back in a in a public enough way that, that let people know that that was what was going on, or at least that's what he thought was going on. Yeah, I, ha I, I have to say, you know, one thing that's interesting is about all of this, you know, for stuff like, for example, you know, we, we you use the term bars interference, you know, in a in a different world, of course, the attorney general inquiring about a, a, a case at the Southern District wouldn't really raise eyebrows. Right. And, the, you know, Barr has done a lot of things where he's, I think, very cleverly worked with the shades of gray, whereas, look, as attorney general, he oversees every component of the Justice Department, including individual U.S. attorney's offices. One thing, though, I think that is more crystal clear, like more is less, less of a shade of gray, is this Roger Stone business. And I have to say, I feel like not enough attention has been paid to the testimony of Aaron Zelensky this week. I know it, it made headlines for an afternoon, maybe, I mean, for less than one day. But here you have the former uh, lead prosecutor in the Roger Stone prosecution testifying under oath that his supervisor told him that they needed to give preferential treatment to Roger Stone in his sentencing. And the reason they were doing it was for political reasons and that the U.S. attorney was scared of the president. I thought that was astounding uh, because that's not to me like any kind. There's no shade of gray there about exercising discretion there. Essentially, that's just corruption where you're basically trying to help out the president's friends. And that is what the prosecutor was told and what he testified to under oath. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it, it's, again, kind of a casualty of the fact that there's so much news, there's so much wrongdoing on the part of the administration that, that each individual piece of it kind of gets lost. And then, of course, when you put on top of that the pandemic and the economy and, and protests and, you know, there's so much going on, it's it's easy for things not to get as much uh, sunlight and, and have enough people pay attention as they should, but it, it was striking. And then when Bill Barr is interviewed about it, he just says, oh, no, that's not true. That's not true. You know, there was a wrong being done in this case, and it's my job to remedy it. I mean, how do you square those things? You know, you have this person swearing under oath that this is what happened. He certainly has backup for that. Uh, it, it's really up to Congress at this point. You know, they're having hearings. Are they going to start impeachment proceedings? I don't know. Probably not. But for an attorney general behaving in this way, that really is the only possible remedy to remove him. I mean, the president almost certainly will not remove him. So it's it's either impeachment or where we continue to be stuck with Bill Barr. Yeah, I have to say, uh, Jennifer, I thought I found there was an official statement that came out from the Justice Department spokeswoman 
uh, you know, shortly after Zelensky's testimony. And I thought it was very the wording of it was fascinating because in that statement, it didn't say that the entirety of uh, Mr. Zelensky's testimony was false. Rather, it just said that it was hearsay, which, of course, uh, doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that this is what he's told by a supervisor. In other words, Zelensky's supervisor, of course, was not in one-on-one conversations with uh, Barr, but that was let's, her understanding, right, was that this is why we're doing this. And that matters. Uh, that's concerning. That should be cause for further investigation. And But I have to say, I agree with with you and what you're saying, which is, who is going to do something about this? And I, I, I you know, I think in another world, if, if for example, you or I, Jennifer, had decided to give preferential treatment to a particular defendant, maybe because, you know, whatever, they're your cousin's friend or, you, you know, they paid money to your business or whatever it may be. That would be a, a, a something that OPR would investigate. In other words, the Office of Professional Responsibility at the Justice Department. But the head of OPR is a, uh, is a bar appointee. And this is the same, uh, individual who found nothing improper. Uh, we just found out this week about Trump or about Barr using the justice or the antitrust division to, to launch antitrust investigations against cannabis companies, not because there was any harm to competition, which is, of course, the use of the antitrust, what the antitrust laws are about, but rather because he didn't like cannabis. Um, which I, I found that astonishing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of ways in which the the priorities of the Justice Department change administration to administration. I mean, I think if you looked at, for example, civil rights enforcement under any of the recent Republican administrations, you would say, like, they're not doing what they should be doing. The priorities they're focusing on are wrong, you know. So to me, some of those civil things get a little murky and whether it's okay to be political somewhat because the the kind of policy decisions of the administration do drive a lot of those things. Um, it's purer to me when you think about the criminal aspect of what the department does and how important it is to be fair and even-handed and apolitical when enforcing the criminal laws. Um, so that's why, to me, I mean, I, I also found that testimony of, I think, John Elias was his name. I mean, it it was stunning, and he was brave to come forward and and say that, and that definitely shouldn't happen. But it's still, to me, an easier call on the on the criminal side because I think everyone can agree whatever your you know leanings are as far as what the the department should do in the antitrust realm or civil rights or voting, what have you. But but criminal just seems different. I don't know. What do you think? Don't you think criminal kind of has a uh, almost a higher level of, of purity in terms of the intentions, or at least it should. You know, I, it's interesting. I actually regard, and I, this is something, I, I'm somebody who is an antitrust litigator for many years and then became a federal prosecutor, and now I'm a, a defense attorney. I, I guess I view it as, I view both of them as pretty egregious abuses of power because from my perspective, the antitrust laws talk entirely about competition, and I'm not saying that cannabis companies are protected class, like you're going after African Americans or something, or LGBTQ company uh, companies owned by LGBTQ people. But nonetheless, um, it is um, bizarre to say, "Look, I'm going to just use this law, which is about 
ensuring that there's competition. It, that's what the face of the statue of all the, all, all the antitrust laws are about the Sherman Act, Clayton Act, et cetera. And I'm going to use those to just go after companies that I don't like. It's sort of like how, you know, there was this allegations of using tax audits, right? To go after political enemies. I mean, to me, it's an abuse of power. Now, I think regarding the Roger Stone issue, yeah, to me, that is super clear cut as well. I mean, whether, whether Barr, thinks that there's some injustice that's occurred there. I will say that the issue here is, of course, the reason Barr cares about that particular defendant uh, is because he's a, an associate of Trump's. I mean, there's no there's I don't think there could be any doubt about that. I know plenty of people who've had unjust treatment by the Justice Department uh, in my from my perspective. But let's just be real. I mean, they're not on the radar of Trump and Barr. And I will say that I have been getting a lot of questions lately of, from people who are like, do I need to hire a lobbyist? Do I need to, how can I get myself in the radar of Trump and Barr? Because essentially right now to get justice out of the justice department, you need a lobbyist, uh, or, a, a hangers on of the Trump crowd rather than, um, a, a, a good legal position. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's one of the reasons or one of the ways in which the Justice Department usually tries to stay above accusations like that and, and not be subject to them is, is with consistency, right? I mean, that's why you have policies where in the vast majority of cases you seek a guideline sentence and you are bound by your obligation to the court to calculate a guideline sentence accurately, you know, and, and you do that so that you you don't have allegations coming in that you're treating people differently, right, without good cause. Uh, and so that's why, you know, the departure in the Stone case to try to mess around with the actual accurate guidelines calculation and then to say that this person, for no good reason, should be treated differently and get a below-guideline sentence, it really it didn't ring true. It was very – it sounded very false to those of us who had been in the department because you really – uh, to, to stay ethical, to stay above the fray, you really do have to be consistent in these matters. And that's why what happened in these very few cases that all have in common friendships with the president from Stone to Flynn to attempted interference with Cohen and so on, you know, that's what they have in common. And that's what makes it so egregious. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I think Zelensky made that point very clear when he said that the issue to him was the process. In other words, you know, for me personally, I think the guidelines do need substantial reform. I do think that the Justice Department really should reconsider some of the policies it has towards sentencing. But you do that for all defendants. Uh, you do that as a, as a, a broad reform so that everyone is treated equally under the law. You don't do that in an individual case for a person who, who is a close associate, friend, and partner of the president. Right, and it becomes even so much more glaring when you think about the facts of this particular case. I mean, Stone wasn't just a friend of the president's. He actually physically threatened a witness in the matter. He physically threatened the judge. He, you know, was blogging about things and had to be subjected to a gag order. He took the government to... to it's proof at trial and, and, and fought every step of the way. You know, he's just, he didn't behave in such a way as uh, someone who would normally get a break from the Justice Department. Uh, and so it just makes it even more clear that, that this didn't have to do with anything about him except his, his friendship with the president. But it's, it's more than that, too. You know, it's not just 
a friendship and an association. It's that actually what he was there for implicated the president, right? So it's it's that he was substantively, uh, the president was substantively involved in the criminal behavior that Roger Stone was on trial for. So that's another reason that they really wanted to keep him happy. This goes back to Bill Barr's protection of the president. It's not just about doing a favor for the president's friend. It's about potentially protecting the president from liability himself. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, because you know, as we know, for example, Roger Stone was the conduit from WikiLeaks to the campaign, for example, and getting information regarding WikiLeaks. So what was happening there? He was central to that whole story. And I think many believe uh, that there's more to that story and that Roger Stone is keeping quiet uh, to protect the president. And it very well may be that this intervention is a reward. Yeah, I, ha- I-, I have to say, Jennifer, you know, I do share your intuition that nothing will come of this, that I I would love for there to be an investigation of this matter. I would love for the House to subpoena that supervisor and others at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. I have the feeling that my wish won't come. I guess what I wonder is where does all of this leave us in the end of the day? In other words, we, we live now in a society where the president and an attorney general engage in corrupt behavior and everyone's just like, eh, you know, we got other stuff to deal with. We got a pandemic and a societal uh, turmoil and an economic problem and an election and so on and so forth. What is it? I guess where, what does this mean? How, how can we what can we do about that going forward when whenever the Trump presidency is over? Well, I think if if. If Biden wins in November and and comes in and there'll be a new attorney general, I do think that Democrats uh, are are standing up against this. I don't know if it's as much as they can. I mean, I don't know if they'll impeach Bill Barr or not, but they're saying the right things to suggest that there will be a backlash against what has happened. So if we have a new Democratic regime and a new Democratic AG, I think and I hope that they will set the opposite tone, right? That they will be very clear about the corruption at DOJ and the need to get back to how things were before, and that they'll be very carefully, very careful to act ethically in in cases and, and really just paint kind of the opposite picture of what's been happening now. If, on the other hand, Trump wins again and Barr remains as attorney general, you know, I don't know, can the Justice Department and the rest of our institutions stand four more years of this? Um, The longer it goes on, the more it kind of becomes the way that things are done. Uh, And I don't know where we will be if it goes to 2024. But I do think if if the the Dems win in November, I I think we we will see a, a complete reversal uh, now, whether anyone's actually prosecuted, whether they try to bring charges against Trump or anyone else for some of the crimes that still have time left in the statute of limitations, I don't know. I doubt it. I think they're more likely just to turn the page and say, let's move forward in a positive way. Um, but that's that's my hope, at least. I hope the Dems win in November, and I hope that means a, a new day pushing in the opposite direction of, of where we've been pushed in these last three or four years. Yeah, you know, I hope you, I hope you're right, Jennifer. I have to say, certainly, I, I there's no question. I agree with everything you said, and I I think there's no question that there will be a dramatic change of tone and in practice <clears throat> if Joe Biden wins in November. But I have to say, I think we need more than that. 
I think we cannot, <clears throat> with this whole incident, this whole, yeah, I call it an incident, right? With this whole experience that the Trump presidency has taught me is that we cannot rely on norms, practices, or good faith. We absolutely, we have learned the limits of our system and our, and, and we need to set up safeguards, practices, laws, and policies that ensure that we won't have to ask these questions and deal with these problems ever again. Yeah, I I agree with you to a point. The problem is how do you do that and, and what do those laws look like? Um, and, you know, there's certain areas, like, for example, as you know, the Trump administration has been firing inspectors general, right, which are supposed to be independent watchdogs over executive agency functions. And so there is now um, some legislation pending to try to protect inspectors general more than they're protected um, and and have to give more reasons for firing them and so on. So some people say that, you know, they have to be fired for cause and, and kind of other sorts of protections. And, and the problems with those things sometimes is then you run into an accountability problem. If you make someone so secure that they really can't be fired, then are they accountable? What if they're a terrible IG? What if they're not working? What if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing? Then they're still, they're, they're too hard to remove. So I, I agree with you. And I think that, that Congress and others need to be thinking about whether we can put safeguards into place for at least some things, but you, you do have to be careful with that. That's, that's my concern. And I don't know where you draw that line. But but that is a, a good idea. I mean, certainly in some places, I think we could legislate in some ways to try to stop some of the, the norm busting that has become so common in this regime over the last four years. I think that's, I, I hope that's right. And I guess I will just say, I would love to see, uh, you know, how, you know, House Democrats and this is I'm saying this partly for some of our listeners who are uh, associated with House Democrats. I, I would love to see them um, investigate this matter, whether or not there's impeachment. In other words, you know, people are saying let's impeach Bill Barr. In my opinion, there's an element to which that puts the cart ahead of the, the horse. Cart ahead of the horse. In other words, why don't we find out what happened and just at least I feel like having a public airing of what happened in this particular case to the extent it can be told. I think, uh, I think that would be of value regardless of whether there's any result because I think the public should know, uh, what is happening if there's corrupt activity in the Justice Department. And I really hope more people continue to come forward and expose it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's, it's, you know, there's so much to do. <laughs> you wonder if they're going to get to this, but a full airing is valuable in and of itself, even if it doesn't lead to some sort of legislative action. And, you know, if, if there is a, a exploration of the facts of what happened here and people know about that, if nothing else, you would hope that the public reaction to that would guide the next administration, right, in how they behave and, and encourage them to do the right thing and not to try to to slip and do some of what we right now find so terrible about what's going on absolutely well i i have to say jennifer thank you for for discussing this with us it's been you know it's you could tell i'm passionate about this it's infuriating almost to think about these things but i think it's important 
uh, for us to talk about them. And you, your perspective as somebody who's an alum of the Southern District in particular is, is, is really valuable. Yeah, thanks, Renato. It's always really fun to talk to you. We we are always on the same wavelength, I think, about how we think about these things. And it, it is important to talk about. I mean, people should know what's happening and, and what the bar regime is trying to do. It's the only way that we have any hope of of urging those in power to take action, I think, is if we keep talking about it and pointing out to people that this is not okay and it's not normal and it needs to change. That's for sure. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 